Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions and those who are joining us on C-SPAN TV. For those in-house, we ask that courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, those watching online are welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. Leading our discussion today is Elizabeth Slattery, who serves as a legal fellow and appellate advocacy program manager in our Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. She, of course, focuses on the Supreme Court, separation of powers, judicial nominations, and a variety of other constitutional issues. She also manages Heritage's moot court sessions to prepare litigators for oral argument in cases pending before the Supreme Court. Please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Slattery. Elizabeth. John. Tomorrow morning, the Supreme Court will hear oral argument in South Dakota versus Wayfair, a case dealing with whether states can require out-of-state retailers to collect sales tax when their residents make an online purchase. The court previously held in Quill Corp versus North Dakota that retailers must have a physical presence, such as a storefront or employees, in the state in order to be subject to their taxing authority. Justice Scalia explained in his concurrence in Quill that Congress has the final say over regulation of interstate commerce, and it can change the rule by simply saying so. The Quill case dealt with mail order retailers and was decided years before online shopping existed. States argue now that they are missing out on billions of dollars in lost sales tax revenue. South Dakota decided to challenge the Quill case and passed a law requiring out-of-state retailers to collect and remit sales tax if they make 200 transactions or $100,000 in sales in the state per year. Wayfair and other retailers refused to comply, and now their case is at the Supreme Court. What will the court decide, and how might Congress and the states respond? To unpack these issues, we're fortunate to have with us today a panel of experts who will discuss the constitutional and policy implications of this case. First up, we'll hear from David Salmons. He's a partner at Morgan Lewis, where he heads up the firm's appellate practice. David focuses on complex constitutional and regulatory matters across a range of legal subjects. He has argued 14 cases before the Supreme Court and numerous cases before other federal and state courts. David previously served as an assistant to the Solicitor General and a law clerk to Judge Eugene Davis of the Fifth Circuit. He's a graduate of Brigham Young University and the University of Chicago Law School. Then we'll hear from Jonathan Williams. He is the chief economist and vice president for the Center for State Fiscal Reform at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Jonathan works with state policymakers, congressional leaders, and members of the private sector to develop fiscal policy solutions for the states. 
He previously served as staff economist at the Tax Foundation. Jonathan's work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and many other publications, and he frequently appears as a guest on the PBS NewsHour and other TV programs. He's a graduate of Northwood University. Then we'll hear from Michael Grieva. He's a professor of law at my alma mater, the Antonin Scalia Law School, where he teaches constitutional law, administrative law, and federal courts. He was previously a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, chairman of the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and founder of the Center for Individual Rights. Michael has written nine books, including Sell Globally, Tax Locally, Sales Tax Reform for the New Economy, which is particularly relevant to today's discussion. He's also written numerous articles and provided testimony at the state and federal level. Michael studied political science and philosophy at the University of Hamburg in Germany and received a PhD in government from Cornell. And last but not least, we'll hear from my colleague at Heritage, Adam Michel. He's a policy analyst in Heritage's Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Adam's research focuses on the economics of taxation, international tax competition, and the federal budget. His work has appeared in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, among many other news outlets. He previously worked at the Mercatus Center and the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Adam has a bachelor's degree from Whitman College, and he's currently pursuing a PhD in economics at George Mason University. So with that, we'll start off with David. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'll start with a little history of the Commerce Clause issue that's at the heart of this case. Then I'll discuss the doctrine of stare decisis and the competing theories about how it should apply in this case. And lastly, I'll talk about Congress's role and the specific actions it has already taken and is considering taking that should preclude the Supreme Court from overturning its prior precedent and endorsing South Dakota's statute. First, the history. Uh, they say that the only things that are certain in this life are death and taxes. And the history of this case and its predecessors, I think, suggests another candidate for the list. Uh, states that impose use taxes on their residents' out-of-state purchases inevitably will try to conscript out-of-state merchants into collecting and remitting those taxes. Merchants who, precisely because they are out-of-state, have no recourse to the ballot box. Without fail, states will always choose to impose the tax collection duty on out-of-state merchants to whom they are not politically accountable rather than trying to collect the tax directly from in-state purchasers to whom they are politically accountable. Forcing out-of-state merchants, especially those engaged in e-commerce, to collect and remit its unpopular use taxes is exactly what South Dakota seeks to do in this case. But South Dakota is hardly the first state to do so. Uh, both South Dakota and others uh, have tried this many times before. Um, it seems about every 25 years or so, another set of states concocts a new regime to test these waters. Uh, to date, the Supreme Court has rejected every such attempt, holding true to the principle that a state can only impose such tax collection obligations on merchants that have a physical nexus to the state. The Supreme Court announced this rule in Bellis Hess in 1967. Uh, the court recognized, quote, the sharp distinction between retailers with outlets, solicitors, or property within a state, and, quote, those who do no more than communicate with customers in the state by mail or common carrier as part of a general interstate business. The Commerce Clause, the court held, barred Illinois in that case from imposing tax collection duties on out-of-state merchants who lacked a, a meaningful physical nexus to the state. And the court emphasized that if uh, it reached any other result 
the, the, uh, the outcome would be a virtual welter of complicated obligations on interstate sellers. So after Bellis Hess, uh, the issue went quiet for a while. Then in 1992, the Supreme Court was faced with another state attempt to conscript out-of-state merchants, this time by North Dakota, who tried to force out-of-state catalog retailers to collect use taxes for goods shipped into the state. North Dakota argued that the Supreme Court's decisions interpreting the Dormant Commerce Clause had evolved and became and become less rigid and more permitting of state regulation, at least in the absence of express prohibitions by Congress since the time Bellis Hess was decided. Exactly the same kinds of evolution of Supreme Court doctrine that uh, South Dakota makes in this case. So the state in, uh, in Quill asked the Supreme Court to overturn Bellis Hess, and the Supreme Court refused. It again emphasized the negative impact that would result on interstate sellers, uh, but more importantly, uh, the, the court in Quill held that it must apply stare decisis and follow its prior precedent in this area because under our constitutional scheme, Congress, and not the Supreme Court, has the final word as to what regulations of interstate commerce are permissible. And by maintaining a consistent interpretation, the court explained, quote, Congress is now free to decide whether, when, and to what extent states may burden interstate mail order concerns with a duty to collect interstate taxes, close quote. So that brings us to the competing theories of stare decisis at issue in this case. As a threshold matter, stare decisis is the idea that today's court should stand by yesterday's decision, even if a different or better uh, rule could be devised. In an oft-quoted formulation, Justice Brandeis once put it this way, stare decisis means that it is more important that the applicable rule of law be settled than it be settled right. The court has recognized two types or strengths of stare decisis in constitutional cases where the Supreme Court has the final say. Stare decisis has relatively less strength. Stare decisis concerns in that context must be balanced against the fact that the court retains an important duty to correct erroneous constitutional interpretations precisely because it is the only entity who can do so. In cases of statutory interpretation, however, stare decisis has more strength because Congress remains free to alter what the court has done. Therefore, the constitutional order in that context is best served when courts adhere to their prior holdings and leave it to Congress, who alone possesses the legislative power under the Constitution to correct any mistakes concerning statutory language. Now, this case presents an an interesting opportunity for the court uh, to test its adherence to stare decisis in the context of constitutional interpretations of the Dormant Commerce Clause. On the one hand, as South Dakota and its amici emphasize, the Commerce Clause is in the Constitution. And so they claim the Supreme Court should feel more free to overturn its prior precedents in this area when the current court believes they are mistaken. On the other hand, just as in the case of statutory interpretation, the Constitution assigns to Congress, not the courts, the final word on how to regulate uh, commerce in this area. Congress can bless state regulation that would otherwise violate the Dormant Commerce Clause, and it can prohibit state actions affecting interstate commerce that would not otherwise be unconstitutional. Because Congress is the final arbiter of all interstate commerce regulation, the better view, excuse me, the better view is that the court should give Bellis Hess and Quill the highest level 
of stare decisis respect. That is exactly what the court in Quill said when asked to overturn Bellis Hess. And whether or not Bellis Hess and Quill were right about the Commerce Clause, and I think there's a very strong case that they were right about the Commerce Clause, they surely were right that Congress has the institutional capacity and the constitutional authority to finally resolve all issues of interstate commerce. The last point I'll make for now is that Congress's power in this area is not just theoretical. Congress has already taken important legislative acts in reliance on Bellis Hess and Quill's physical nexus requirement, and it is actively considering additional legislation in this area. Any decision by the Supreme Court that overturns Bellis Hess and Quill and endorses South Dakota's legislation would be an in run around Congress's authority and would undermine Congress's actions in this area. South Dakota argues that uh, 25 years of inaction prove that Congress cannot fix Quill. Uh, There are at least two things wrong with that assertion. First, uh, South Dakota begs the ultimate question, which is whether Congress believes Quill needs to be fixed at all. And uh, second, uh, Congress has uh, been and remains very active in this area. Most importantly, Congress enacted the Internet Tax Freedom Act, or ITFA, in 1998, and it just made the statute permanent in 2016. As the legislative history to the ITFA makes clear, Congress relied and incorporated Quill's nexus principles into that statute. And uh, that that legislative history states that um, its its objective was to provide certainty that that those nexus principles would remain in place uh, just as they apply to mail-order commerce unless and until a future Congress decides to alter the current nexus requirements, close quote. The ITFA does a few important things that are worth remembering. Uh, First, it prohibits discriminatory taxation of Internet commerce, and it defines a discriminatory tax to include any tax imposed on Internet commerce that is either not generally imposed or legally collectible on transactions involving similar property goods, services, or information Uh, accomplished by other means, or that imposes an obligation to collect or pay the tax on a different person or entity uh, than in the case of similar transactions. And in many ways, most importantly, it prohibits uh, any tax in which the state or local tax is based, uh, bases the obligation to collect the tax solely on the fact that in-state purchasers access a site on a remote seller's out-of-state computer service, servers. So if the only connection to the state or the only basis the state is using to impose the tax collection obligations is the fact that in-state users can access the computer networks of out-of-state sellers, uh, the statute uh, prohibits that as a discriminatory tax. The ITFA shows that the Supreme Court is no longer free to interpret the Dormant Commerce Clause in this context in a vacuum. Congress, relying on Quill's nexus requirements, has now established certain legal principles that must be taken into account. And in this regard, I would just mention that the Solicitor General suggested in its amicus brief that the Supreme Court should consider limiting Quill's nexus requirement to interstate catalog sellers and adopt the notion that Internet sellers are virtually present in every taxing jurisdiction is flatly inconsistent with the ITFA both because it would base the tax collection duty solely on the fact that in-state purchasers are assessing an Internet seller's out-of-state computer servers and because it would discriminate against Internet commerce versus other forms of commerce. 
Congress has expressly rejected both of those principles, and that should be the end of the matter. Lastly, I'll just mention briefly that there are several other proposals for additional legislation in this area. Congress is the right forum in, uh, for those requests. It is far better suited than the Supreme Court in a case like this uh, to resolve policy questions, uh, including uh, the impacts and effects of, on interstate commerce of state and local regulation, whether free or low-cost software can eliminate or mitigate the costs uh, on Internet sellers, and how to account for the fact that nearly all large Internet sellers are already collecting these taxes. So the costs of overturning Quill would fall disproportionately on small businesses. Afternoon, everyone, and I'll have to warn you, uh, first off, I'm not a lawyer, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn last night. Uh, I am an economist, uh, and I will uh, just bring a few brief points from uh, our perspective on the state's uh, side of things, and I represent the American Legislative Exchange Council, where we have about 2,000 state and local elected officials who are members of ours from all 50 states, uh, both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, who are devoted to free markets, limited government, and federalism. Those are the three guiding principles at ALEC. And it's really those three guiding principles that have caused us to be skeptical of the idea of states taxing beyond their borders or nations taxing beyond their borders, as we've seen with recent new studies from the European Union. Uh, so one of the – let me back through the ALEC history of how our members have felt on this issue, going back all the way to the 1990s. Since ALEC has been around uh, since 1973, we have a long institutional – a view on this issue, and I think it's an important one. Uh, you, you hear a lot of uh, mention around town these days or around in news stories that the states want and need this new authority. Uh, I think you know, the important point is to point out that as an organization representing 2,000 elected officials at the state and local level, our members feel differently. We feel that constitutional protections on interstate commerce ought to be treated with the utmost respect. Uh, we really uh, appreciate the leadership of Chairman Bob Goodblatt here in Washington, D.C., and his uh, work on the House Judiciary Committee looking at ways to address these issues while protecting interstate commerce, while protecting some very important principles that our ALEC members have valued for these 45 years of our organization and then certainly since the Quill decision in the early 1990s. Uh, as someone who's been to all 50 states now, worked with our members, I can tell you having many conversations with state legislators, I'll boil down a, a few of the main points that I think we've taken away, but I encourage you to, to take a look at the, the brief that Alec filed in this case. Uh, my colleague Joel Griffith, who's with us, Jonathan Houndchild, Bartlett Cleland are all uh, on that brief as authors and did a remarkable job kind of tracing through our position on this issue. Uh, so first of all, I think, you know, the point that uh, often uh, is out there, as I mentioned, that states want and need the new revenue. Uh, you know, if you, if you paid attention to the news stories recently, you'll know that state and local revenue just hit an all-time high for the seventh year in a row. This is not talking about a shortage of revenue. I mean, perhaps if you're a big government advocate, you just want states to spend more. That's not why ALEC is here. That's not why Heritage Foundation is here. We're here to talk about limited government solutions to problems out there. And we uh, encourage states to live within their means, even as they were coming out of the 2008 economic downturn when times were very difficult. They did take real steps to live within their means. And that's an important function to protect taxpayers and to prioritize government services. Uh, also, the fact uh, of all-time uh, revenue being high, it's not just income taxes that are driving this. While income tax revenue is up, 
property tax revenue is up. It's very important to note that sales tax revenue is also up specifically. So from 2012 to 2017, state sales tax, uh, state and local sales tax revenue is up roughly 25%. So there's not a gaping hole in state sales tax systems because of the supposed uh, quote-unquote loophole that some refer to as the uh, remote seller uh, provision of state sales tax law. Also, I think a very under-discussed element of this debate, and certainly of one of the untold stories, I think, of the success of federal tax reform, is that it has empowered states to make a lot of new decisions at their own level of government. You know, we've seen about 30 states uh, uh, issue official reports on what the Tax Cut and Jobs Act means for their state budgets. And so similarly, what we saw after Ronald Reagan's tax reform of 1986, 31 long years ago, when you broaden the tax base at the federal level, you see a huge influx of unexpected revenue for state and local government. So the story of the 2018 state legislative sessions for many states has been unexpected revenue coming in, the debate being about whether they want to use that revenue to grow government or they want to use that revenue to cut tax rates. And certainly as a limited government organization, we encourage them to look for ways to make their states more competitive with that money. But the vast majority of the 30 states or so that have reported have shown unexpected revenue as a result of federal tax reform. So you add that from economic growth that we've seen is strong, all-time record in 2017 of state and local tax revenue to the effect of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And we have a scenario where states are in very good shape when it comes to revenue. In fact, the discussion is, is what do you do with the extra revenue sitting around uh, during this state legislative session? First question. Second question now is, should states be able to tax outside of their borders, and should they be able to regulate outside of their borders? Uh, certainly, even South Dakota has had a beef with the idea that California would be able to apply their environmental regulations to South Dakota and, and put, subject their businesses to those type of regulations. So they should be sympathetic in the, in the sense that we should have some sort of protection from states that are trying to tax and regulate outside of their borders. That's why we have commented on the No Taxation uh, Without uh, Representation uh, Act before Congress or Regulation uh, Act. And that was an important point to delineate both on the tax and regulatory framework what states can do uh, outside of their borders. You take a look at also the idea of the benefit principle. You look at the idea of the political influence. So the political economy piece of this is, I think, very important in that when states are having the ability to tax individuals or regulate individuals that are not their constituents, what kind of political influence do those out-of-state entities actually have? Could they have? You know, when you talk to state legislators across the country, like I have for the last decade, it is a big uh, alluring factor of, of policy is how do you export your tax burden? How do you spread out the cost of your government services to out-of-state residents who then are not going to write, they're not going to complain, they're not going to be involved in the political process, and if they are involved, they certainly have a whole lot less weight around a state capital than in a homegrown uh, in-state business. So there's certainly that aspect of it as well. And uh, of course, then you have the idea of uh, companies being subject to out-of-state auditors who 
potentially much less favorably on of out-of-state company as well. My mind goes to the New York example. We all have talked about uh, New York's aggressive tax department, how they go after out-of-state residents on an income tax basis as well. That's something we've supported the mobile workforce idea uh, before Congress, which is to set some reasonable standards on what states can do to tax non-residents. You know, it began with the things like the jock taxes of athletes coming into a state and being taxed for a limited uh, time in that state. And of course, it's been now applied by New York's aggressive tax department to potentially business travelers going through Kennedy on a connection to Europe and sending a few work emails now being subject to New York income tax. Imagine that scenario where New York tax department is empowered to tax small businesses from around the country with no physical footprint whatsoever in New York and applying that kind of aggressive revenue collection regime on a sales and use tax side. That's a scenario I think should keep most small business owners that want to sell online up night up at night if they were looking to sell to New York residents. And then finally, from a fairness perspective, this is the other thing we talk to state legislators quite a bit about. Uh, and it's certainly a concern. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There's fairness issues at play, regardless of what kind of a system you look at when it comes to internet taxation of remote sales, whether it looks at uh, sales tax collection of in-state businesses. That being said, though, according to the GAO report, which I encourage any of you that want to dig deeper into this issue to really look at, because they have some amazing statistics that they've found, only about 2 to 4% of all state and local sales taxes go uh, untaxed uh, through remote sales. I mean, we're talking about a very small piece of it. Now that Amazon collects in every single state where there's a sales tax, uh, that's been a huge movement towards states collecting that piece that's uh, perhaps was untaxed before. And you look at the idea that the top retailers of the top retailers, 87 to 96 percent of their sales go taxed currently. So uh, this issue that there's a, a huge gaping hole uh, in sales tax codes is just not borne by the facts. I mean, we've seen a rapidly changing environment when it comes to e-commerce. I would argue that physical, it shows that physical presence works because when a company like Amazon, who's been successful at providing goods and services to so many Americans out there, when they wanted to expand and do same-day delivery, which I take advantage of, they wanted you know buy Whole Foods, when they want to do things like that to have them expand to be really the juggernaut company that they are today, that means that they've developed physical presence nearly everywhere. And that it just shows that when a business gets to that level, uh, they really would have a physical presence anyways in most cases. And let me just conclude with the idea of, of Patrick Byrne, uh, the founder of Overstock. And when he was testifying in front of House Judiciary a couple of years ago, he made a statement that really has stuck with me ever since. And it talks about how this potential tax collection regime, 12,000 taxing jurisdictions, perhaps more across the United States, could stop the next Amazon, could stop the next overstock. And that should be something that we all worry about. Because when mom and pops now look to expand, they're not looking at perhaps expanding at a second physical location across the street on Main Street. They're looking to expand by selling online. And this is something that could keep them from selling online with this kind of compliance cost. So as Patrick Byrne says, in 1999, we had 18 employees, carried 100 products, and it had $1.8 million in revenue. If we had, had been required to administer and collect sales taxes on behalf of remote state governments without any meaningful simplification, indemnity, and compensation, our chances of becoming an employer of 1,500 American workers that we are today would have been small. 
that for me is the issue going forward. That's why I think ALEC members who want to protect tax competition but also want to protect small business and e-commerce going forward are very skeptic skeptical of new regimes with potentially 12 to 13,000 taxing jurisdictions across the United States. Um, thanks. I have to admit, I wrote that book that Elizabeth mentioned eons ago before some of you here were born um, in preparation for this, and, and I then left the topic alone. Um, in preparation for this event, I sort of flipped through, you know, some blogs and stuff, and there's not a single new argument in all these years. Um, the unquestioned premise of the entire um, debate is that sales and use taxes should be destination-based, that is to say, based on the purchaser's um, location. And then the only question is who's going to collect that and how many ties or contacts do you have to have to that particular jurisdiction to be subject to collection obligations. I think as a policy matter, this is not a good system. I think we should have an origin-based system of taxation so that it's the seller's tax uh, location that determines the tax base and the tax rate. And that could either be the um, principal place of business or retail location, whatever. There are a number of reasons for that proposal, why that makes sense. Um, I'll leave one off, which is the political responsibility and accountability idea, which both previous speakers have mentioned. It's very important to my mind to align political responsibility with tax authority. But there are other reasons. Um, one of them has to do with the enforcement and administrative costs of the system. Other reasons have to do with tax competition and the territoriality principle. Um, I'll make this very brief. Um, the, if you don't know what a tax system should look like and what would be efficient or not, um, one good first cut is figure out a system that minimizes the administrative and enforcement costs. Have a single tax collector and a single payor who's in charge of or who already possesses all the information that is needed to figure out what the tax is. How do I know this makes sense? Because every single state in this great country administers an origin-based tax for sale. Not one of, If destination-based taxation is such a great idea, I invite South Dakota to try it. Go ahead um, and have people show their driver's license or residence cards every time they purchase something um, at a local store. I don't think that would work very well. Nobody. I think one state actually tried once, and that turned out to be a fiasco, and so it you know, lasted 15 seconds. Um, why we would inflict that on the interstate system is not entirely clear to me. Um, you see the same thing even in, in cross-border sales. So there are busloads of uh, shopping tourists that schlep to Delaware and purchase stuff. Nobody in at Christiana Mall asks you for your driver's license and then charge you the applicable use tax. It's taxable at Delaware's um, rate. Um, all the internet does is it sort of universalizes and democratizes and regularizes um, that system. 
Uh, with respect to competition, I think tax competition is good, not just on the purchaser side, but also on the sell side. Um, states compete for business in all sorts of ways, including taxes, including regulation. Why should this be any different? The aggregate gains from competition are huge, and there's no state in the country that ought to know this better than South Dakota. Um, everyone here has a credit card, probably more than one. You would not have that credit card but for the Supreme Court's decision that credit card transactions with respect to usury fees and so forth under the National Bank Act are controlled by the bank's um, home uh, and not by the purchasers. And when the Supreme Court handed down that decision, the first state to abolish usury laws was the state of South Dakota. That is why for a while all credit cards came from South Dakota until other states sort of caught up. Um, why that same state would withhold that um, same privilege of competing from tax-free states or sales tax-free states is beyond me. And I'll say finally something on a somewhat broader note, and that is um, territorialism under the Constitution. Under the Constitution, states are equal, and they are territorial. Um, and the rock-bottom principle is that citizens choose their state and not the other way around. Um, we have compromised that in all sorts of ways, and the Supreme Court has done not remotely enough to stand in the way, um, and it's actually a fairly menacing proposition. So you look at our fabulous product liability uh, law, um, they, I mean, which is controlled by whatever hellhole jurisdiction some trial lawyer manages to find, and then that's the liability standard across the country. You could control that, too, by making the liability rules travel with the place of retail sale. That would be the same principle, but we don't. Um, somebody has already mentioned renewable portfolio standards in uh, many, many states, in particular California, uh, which purport to tell other states how to produce energy. Um, California has tried to tell the state of Nebraska and Oklahoma how big chicken coops have to be. Um, the multi-state tax, uh, multi-state settlement agreement on tobacco taxation imposed a um, universal excise tax on tobacco products across the entire country on an extraterritorial basis, and on and on it goes. I don't hold any great brief for the um, quill rule. I think there are probably better rules out there, but I'll say this. At least it's territorial, and that is sort of one reminder that would be useful for all of us to keep in mind. Thank you all for, for joining us. I am going to uh, reiterate a couple points that have been made and then hopefully end on a, on a slightly different note. Um, to reiterate, reiterate Jonathan's point, the untaxed internet is is largely a myth. The GAO report that he pointed you all to is uh, is a really great place to start, but if you just survey people after they make their last uh, tr uh, internet transaction, uh, about two-thirds of them will tell you that they've paid tax on it, and that likely vastly understates the amount of taxes being collected because you're relying on people to remember uh, how that transaction went. If you actually look, dig down to the data, 90% of sales from the top 100 online retailers 
uh, are, are already taxed, and that's because of this. As businesses become larger, their business model requires them to be in more and more states, which uh, makes them subject to additional state taxes. We've seen this uh, this play out in Amazon, as as was also mentioned before. What Amazon, and when they were a small startup, were against this uh, expansion of state tax authority to. Uh, to additional uh, outside of state borders. And as the company grew and they uh, had physical presence in more and more states, their position all of a sudden changed. And this is indicative of the regulatory cost that comes along with expanding state taxing authority beyond their borders. That as, uh, as you become larger, you, can, you have the ability to, to actually figure out taxes in the 10,000 different taxing jurisdictions. When you're a small startup selling on eBay or Etsy and you're just in one state, you the, the ability to, to, to comply with all of those various regulations becomes much harder. So this, this idea that, that, that state revenue collectors and large business can collude to keep startup competitors out of the market, I think is, is really problematic going forward. And, and we, should be, we should be cognizant of the small businesses that maybe are below some of the thresholds that are thrown out there as, as exemptions to some of the proposals. Uh, just the IRS in 2015 estimated there was over 37,000 businesses with no paid employees that had over a million dollars of revenue. And so that, that's a, a small business with a lar- large large revenue in, if you're going to just put it on paper. But if you have no employees, the additional cost of hiring a business to comply with 50 state uh, new fifty new state tax systems is, uh, is, is a big additional cost that, that if you can't even hire a first employee, um, then, then that additional cost is obviously going to be a, a burden in expanding and becoming an a, a, a employer of many more people. The, the last thing I'd like to, to end on is this idea of uh, extraterritorial taxation as being a threat to, to, the, to constraining government growth and individual liberty. States have delegated the authority of collecting taxes to businesses, and therefore it makes sense that the, that the taxing rules should be tied to the business's location and not all of the different people that they may interact with uh, across, uh, through, across the United States, across the world, uh, via the Internet. The, where there's skepticism from all corners of uh, U.S. policymakers of the recent European Commission's proposal to tax large uh, American corporations on their digital uh, digital revenue tied to consumer location. So rather than uh, Google or Facebook being present in a uh, European country, it's just does someone in their, that country happen to interact with the, comp- the company online? And expanding taxes to to that definition of, of economic activity is uh, is really terrifying when you think of the implications of every country around the world that, hap- that has someone accessing a company's product online having taxing rights over that business. That's uh, that that sort of expansion of taxing rights is, uh, is in my view, problematic. So, oh, sorry. oh, sorry. <laughs> one one last point. The, the I think it comes back to. To the to the title of our of our panel, our event here, and is do borders matter? And should should borders constrain state taxing authority? And I think the answer is yes to both. Yes, borders do matter, and yes, borders should constrain the ability of, of states to uh, to tax businesses that are uh, that are physically present elsewhere. Thank you. Sorry about preemptively giving oh, you the oh. hook. Um, before we open it up for questions from the audience, do you all have anything you want to respond to? 
Did anybody bring anything up you wanted to address? No takers? Okay. All right, well, I have one question before we uh, open it up. So I thought it was interesting that South Dakota, in its brief to the Supreme Court, it says that it's missing out on something like $33 billion annually in lost sales tax revenue. But the GAO report, uh, and, and Wayfair cites this in its brief, the GAO report says it's more like $8 billion, maybe up to $13 billion. So I was wondering if, if someone who's kind of dug into this could explain you know, why is there such a big uh, gap between what the state claims it's, uh, it's missing out on and what it might actually be missing out on? It's got to be, you know, the, you mentioned the 8 to 13 billion is the GAO estimate. It's got to be assumptions of physical presence and remote uh, taxation. Uh, that would be, that'd be the biggest logical difference there. Uh, you know, the South Dakota brief uh, was interesting for that aspect that they were so far off from the GAO estimate. It was also interesting that they were basically making the case that, that states just need more money to spend especially on K-12 education, they make the point in the brief, which is somewhat ironic because South Dakota has been a state that's followed somewhat of a limited government format, has kept the K-12 education spending below the actual national averages, and has seen actually higher than average K-12 test results. And so there's a couple of interesting points of that South Dakota brief uh, when I was reading it for a couple of times, yeah. And I think the, the estimates that come from state revenue collectors are almost always significantly inflated. The, we've seen estimates in both New York and California where they've expanded their their sort of ability to collect tax on, on, on various definitions of sales. And, and the estimates that those states put out are almost always significantly smaller than the actual revenue that materializes from the change. So I think it's just a bias in trying to make their, their argument stronger. I, I think it also highlights one of the problems with using the vehicle of this case to have this kind of uh, policy debate and, and outcome. Uh, you know, the state here uh, created a statute for the sole purpose of presenting a vehicle to overturn uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Quill, and it rushed through the lower courts uh, on a declaratory judgment basis with very little record development, very little testing of evidence back and forth about any of the underlying facts in terms of the actual effects that are being had here, and instead we have uh, what could be characterized as fairly self-serving assertions by all concerned, haven't really been subjected to much vigorous back and forth. And you compare that with the fact-finding process that, that Congress uh, can employ, where people testify, they're under oath, there's uh, back and forth, there's real testing of information, you've got the GAO and others uh, that provide information, and it's a very different uh, way of building a record to test some of these various assertions that you'll find in the amicus briefs and the briefs themselves. From the audience, if you could please wait for the microphone and, ident and identify yourself and ask a brief question, uh, please don't make a speech. Anyone? Thank you. Hello, I'm Jim Lucier with Capital Alpha Partners. I had the great fortune to work on this issue about 25 years ago and was just chatting with uh, Michael Grave about it. At the time, I was at Americans for Tax Reform and I worked on IRAs at the same time. And there was a lot of research showing that any limitation on IRA contributions dramatically reduced IRA participation because people assumed they'd be under the limit. 
I wonder if there is any research today about whether a de minimis exception for small businesses really helps them deal with online taxation because in one of these businesses, one million sales, no employees, the burden of paperwork would be so high. Uh, would they simply assume that uh, that de minimis doesn't apply? In other words, does it do no good at all, in fact, to say there's a de minimis exception for small businesses? And do you have data to support that? I don't know if there's been someone specifically looking at how a small business uh, thinks about that that trade-off, but the any tax rule that has that marginal impact where there's some horizon out there, we know it changes people's dis marginal decision as to how fast they expand and where they expand. And so the even if you're well below that threshold, uh, there's a bunch of other literatures that support that the claim that it does change decision-making um, on that sort of frontier. Exactly, the cost, the co the the risk of that cost is is high. Even if it, even if you don't, even if you're not going to be the one audited, the, the prospect of it hanging out there is uh, is dampening. The small seller exemption piece, I think, is important because in some legislative vehicles, it's not even permanent, right? And so it, it goes away maybe after two to three years, and applying the full force of these. 12 or 13,000 taxing jurisdictions to small sellers. I think that's something certainly to be concerned with. Uh, you know, there's, there's no doubt about it. And you look at the average NFIB small business owner, I believe, makes less than 100,000 in a year. And all of a sudden, you're applying small seller exemptions at, you know, 100, 200,000 in sales. You're looking at a real nightmare for small business, let alone the audit risk, let alone potential retroactivity, which some states say they're going to pursue anyways. I have never comprehended, I mean, I, I agree, there's a sort of being debated in a, in a fact-free environment, right? Everybody has sort of guesses as to how this would work. Um, I have no idea how this would work in practice, what the compliance rates would be, whether states would actually physically send, I mean, I, I think the scariest piece of this is the auditing requirements. Um, at, at the tail end, um, whether New York actually would have the nerve to send tax collectors to, I don't know, Texas or, you know, some other place and physically sort of lean on these people and, and collect it. it. It's just beyond me. I mean, the there's something unreal about this entire debate to my mind. Vision that possibility, you can just see all of the additional legal questions, constitutional questions, due process questions, retroactivity questions that will come into play uh, if the Supreme Court uh, uh, reverses its prior decisions in this area. And then, you know, all that has to be sorted out in future litigation and the costs, especially uh, to the smaller and medium-sized uh, Internet uh, companies, uh, could be really significant. Um, and, uh, you know, the has the option of a fairly blunt instrument here. It's, a, it's going to, you know, reverse or it's going to keep its prior precedent. It doesn't have the ability to draw nuanced lines about what the regime should be to protect against some of these types of costs for the most vulnerable businesses. Only Congress can do something like that. And it's the, it's the, it's the bluntness of the result here that in many ways would be most disturbing, I think, in the Supreme Court. Uh, flips over the apple and all these questions are open. 
other questions? In the middle. Hi, Ross Marshan, Taxpayers Protection Alliance. Um, I just had a question about the regulatory components of this. Um, one panelist mentioned that there's no sort of um, regulatory enforcement by states outside of state borders. So let's say I had a coffee company operating out of DC and I sent coffee to someone living in California, but I have to label it saying, and I think in California they have um, very stringent cancer warning labels or something, would I have to include that label if I was sending it to someone in California? Certainly a concern. I mean, if there's not a bright line protection against that kind of, uh, pro, pro against that kind of requirement, as somebody who enjoys a, a couple of lattes myself a day, it's uh, something as a coffee company I'd be certainly worried about for California standard. But then as we talked about earlier, the widespread um, problems that states have had with California and other environmental regulations or agricultural regulations. This is not an isolated incident. I mean, this is a widespread issue. Colorado has a has a law that require that doesn't require businesses outside of their state to collect the sales tax, but they, it has laws that require them to report back to the state what their citizens, how much their citizens have spent, and and tell and inform their citizens that there is a use tax liability. So there is. There is this sort of states are pushing the boundaries of what they can do outside of their borders, and I, the, although the, this Supreme Court case won't address that issue, eventual congressional action should also put some sort of should clearly say what state how far states can go in compelling businesses outside of their borders to to follow the rules that are legislated within the state. That's actually a good point. Uh, States are not helpless right now, as sometimes they would like to assert under current law. I mean, they have the ability under the direct marketing case in Colorado to have uh, retailers report uh, their, their sales into the state and, and uh, notify customers of use tax due. They also have the ability to enforce use, enforce use tax on the books. It's not a good political move, though. You know, what the most unpopular taxes are out there are taxes that people see, like property taxes, when they cut a big check to the government, and they realize the burden of that government. Can you imagine on tax day this week if people are coming in and writing big checks to state government on their income tax form on the use tax line? Not very good for re-election prospects in an election year. Uh, that is one of the main reasons they would like to disperse those collections out and have out-of-state sellers collect that for them so there's not the pain and the cost of big government being that visible. Ellen Johnson, uh, Citizens Against Government Waste. Regarding the uh, amount of paperwork that businesses would be tied up in if something were like this were to be overturned, um, we've heard a lot about over 10,000 taxing jurisdictions with varying rules around the country. Uh, who would supply, let's say we have software as a remedy to, to deal with that, who would supply such software? Would that be the Federal government would individual states supply their own, and then who would be would we have uh, who would be picking the winners and losers that would benefit from that sort of uh, uh, deal with the government? I mean, uh, has has anyone South Dakota states uh, put out any ideas on on how to just sort of deal with the nightmare that would come with all this? There's an interesting debate within the briefs on both sides as to. Uh, the effectiveness uh, and accuracy of some of the either free or low-cost software programs that 
uh, are available on the internet or elsewhere. Um, and uh, you know, when you when you think about all of the various permutations of use taxes, there's a lot of irrationality in the certain types of hair products in one state are subject to it, but others aren't, and it varies all over the place. It, uh, uh, you know, the, the there are estimated compliance costs in the GAO report, I believe, that I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're quite substantial, up to, uh, you know, $100,000 over a period of time to, to pay for a software program that's currently available and update it and, and continue to upgrade it as these changes take place. It, it, you compare that with what Congress intended when it passed the ITFA. It created a commission um, uh, to uh, bring all of the states and other uh, interest parties together to try to work out a compromise where, on the one hand, states would simplify their use tax rules. And then in exchange, they, you know, the commission would propose to Congress a uniform nationwide system based on the seller's location uh, that would provide a mechanism for the collection and remittance of those taxes. And for the most part, the states have refused to participate in that and, it, and instead have this strategy of trying to just do an end run around what Congress had intended and, and be able to impose this on their own. And, and the, the amount of compliance costs uh, we think are really quite substantial. Yeah, this, um, because I'm the fogey on this panel and I've seen this before. Um, the compliance costs, the prospect of, you know, compliance costs and inaccuracies in the reporting that might then be auditable and all the rest of it, that was a potent argument against um, getting rid of Quill. 20 years ago, the states knew it all along. Uh, they've undertaken, you know, for 20 years now, efforts to, oh, trust us, we'll simplify this. And there's a computer compliance program just around the corner. They haven't done it in 20 years. What gives you any hope that, you know, the next 20 years will be any better? I don't trust these people at all, quite frankly. And also, I mean, in a lot of cases, uh, the so-called free software is anything but free in terms of matching up product codes to uh, this software that's offered. And the fact that I think the six largest states are not part of the streamlined sales tax uh, protocol. So, you know, they they don't have access, for instance, to perhaps the free software that would be offered to member states. Then, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to look at who bears the ultimate liability, though, for underpayment or overpayment, audit risk. The changing definition, something that we've fought against, uh, bad tax policy, I think, is sales tax holidays for various reasons, always coming on and off the books in state and local definitions, uh, where in some states where you have uh, Twix that's treated as a food product and Snickers that's treated as a candy product and treated under different rules based on state and local sales tax laws, all those kind of things. I don't know that I'd trust the software to necessarily keep up with the changing rules and regulations and bases at the state and local level because at the end of the day, who's going to be the one in the courtroom uh, or potentially dealing with auditors? That's not going to be the software. It's going to be the small business owner. Right, and you've got enforcement risks if you under-collect. You've got consumer class actions and, in many states, key TAM actions if you, uh, if you over-collect. Um, and you have not only assertion of regulatory and audit authority, but inevitably in personam jurisdiction against those types of claims is, is underlying what the states are trying to do here, uh, which raise just a host of issues. And so the potential uh, liability risks for uh, these companies, especially small and medium-sized companies, is really substantial. 
if we were to follow this out and say, yes, we're going to heart, we're going to sort of make all the sales tax regimes look similar so that compliance costs are lower, that undermines the benefits of tax competition that we've heard about. That if the federal government says this is the system or these are the guidelines, then there's no there's no ability for states to experiment with tax systems that are best for their constituents. It's and it's not just a race to the bottom. It's if if, I, if I'm a state and I want to have a tax system that collects more revenue, I'm also prohibited from doing that. So just jurisdictional diversity is also a good thing. And anytime the federal government comes in and says this is the correct way to do it, that sort of prohibits that sort of experimentation. So please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you. Absolutely. Good panel. Thank you. Not at all. Jim Gattuzel. There is never anything new under the sun. Oh, good grief. Yes, we're um, back but I remember from writing this up eons ago that 